Welcome to the Team Never Quit Podcast, the number one podcast that inspires you to fight on. I'm your host, David Rutt Rutherford, here with Mr. Never Quit himself, Marcus Luttrell. Our mission is to help you embrace the suck of life, to teach you the values of working your ass off, and to interview the most hard-charging people on planet Earth. We know life is hard. It's time for you to suck it up, buttercup, and let us teach you to persevere in every environment imaginable by sharing real-world lessons learned by those who never quit. That's right. It's time, Marcus, for us to help them defeat the well, negative insurgency up, in their man. lives. You fire me up. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's roll. Let's roll. Marcus, I know what I normally do. I normally come out like a bat out of hell. And I and I come at you at a thousand miles an hour. But today, it's different, man. Because today, we got a guest coming on here that's doing stuff that is literally on the same level. And in some ways... Maybe even a lo- a little bit more intense, I you know, right, Wizard? We we talked about that as Tim Ballard with Operation Underground Rescue. Oh yeah, for sure. There's a lot of parallels there. Y- you know, absolutely. And, as far as the and, show, oh yeah, 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 I, yeah. The, yeah. For yeah, us, they're both doing God's show, work for sure. Yeah, so, I mean, completely walking that apostolic life, right? But the wild thing is when I come on here. And I start thinking about what do you ask a dude who is doing God's work (laughs) in Iraq? How do you throw a mad minute at him? What are we going to do with that, Marcus? They might turn around on us. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's going to be kind of tough to ask Jeremy what's his favorite place to get drunk, right? (laughs) Probably going to be more selective. Kind of like going into church. Exactly my point. Thank <laughs> I mean, you. Like it's it's funny because church and you want to a football game, you're yelling and you're I mean you're motivated. And it, I, some churches are like that. Don't get me wrong, man. Sometimes when you need to find the Holy Spirit, you walk into yeah, one you, where for sure Baptist right, church, the man, way to get is, all fired up. Yeah, hmm. but you're right. I I think you're yeah, spot yeah, on. Right, you go in there to to ask the to talk about the tell the good Lord about not that he doesn't already know, right? Yeah. But you kind of got to. I figure out the good way to say it. <laughs> Do it quietly. Right? In church. You can't be my typical self in church, right? <laughs> no. That's, plus, you're going to need to be on your best behavior because this is going to be our first in-studio guest. Oh, my gosh. Dude, you know how fired up I am with that? I I mean, to be able to see here and sit and talk to him. I mean, this is what we'd always talked about, right, oh, man. dude? But but he's going to be sitting here, staring at us, talking about the incredible work that this man is doing in Iraq and Syria, helping the poor, helping the sick, helping the needy. I mean, I can't, I just like, I mean, I got a thousand questions right now. I want to 
just start pumping. I mean, he, it's going to be like, and then you did what? And then how do you do this? And then you did that. I mean, this, he, he feeds some crazy number every, every day. Every, every day. Every day. It's, it's thousands. 20, on his website. 25,000? It's Yeah. 25,000 people a day is how many he feeds. On, on preemptivelove.org. His yeah, website. they were feeding, I think it was 25,000 outside of, outside of Raqqa. And I don't know about you, brother, but the last time I was in a war zone, I was not thinking about feeding anybody, bro, but just staying alive. We, we would leave. <laughs> yeah, there's the a whole, there's a whole leave the AO to go eat. Right? Yeah. I'm not thinking about different mission. God's work, right? Yeah, different mission. Very different oh, that's mission. God's work. Yes. Yes, you're right. But I mean, when you when you hear about Jeremy Courtney and you well, go just Man, there's a lot of things going on in a war than just what we do. Great That's perspective. Sure. I mean, we kind of take the uh, the top cover in a lot of things that we do, especially for whatever reason, our generation, and it overshadows some of that uh, the 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 goodness that goes on in war. Can you say goodness goes on in war? I guess you can, right? I mean, well, acts of kindness, acts of charity, not random either, right? I mean, we're in war. Everything's kind of deliberate. On, <laughs> yeah, and remember what Greg Barker, a documentary filmmaker, said. You know, in in the worst of the human condition, when evil is presenting itself in a profound way, goodness is there too, right? Love sure. and, and compassion. One of the things, man, when I when I was out and after working for Blackwater for a couple years, and I, I had an experience. When I, in my second trip to Afghanistan, doing counter drug work and stuff, where went into a compound and had these kids kind of his first time I ever saw kids, the kids of Afghanistan. Because you know, the first time you're there, you don't you're not seeing the kids, man, at all. You're not all you're seeing is where the bad guys. That's it. That's all you're focused on. That night, every, I mean, yeah. we're in out quick. Yeah. And so it, this was it. the first time I actually allowed those children. In, in their situation, the reality of their life to hit me. And man, that's what kind of shifted my life to want to start Frog Logic and do what I do. And, and ultimately led to that first kid's book and working with kids. And and what the, the point of that is, is, you know, there is so many people that are affected by warfare, right? It, it the ripple effect of, of, War and combat—it's devastating. I'll—I'll I'll never forget this as long as I live, man. Uh, first platoon to Iraq, yeah. Jenny Posey, yeah. Saddam's palace, right? And the one that wasn't finished was sitting across. Yeah. I think had thirteen of them, yeah. thirteen pounds. I mean, this thing was unbelievable. We, you roll through there, and the walls are what were they? Forty, fifty feet tall. Then had all these tributaries, and then had the pool house, and the date orchard. His Remember, crib that's was pretty fat, huh? Oh man, it was up that mountain and just the architecture and the design, everything they had carved in there, the solid gold toilet and solid gold elevator. And the locals were still working at the date orchard and they were saying that he used to come out on his balcony and he'd fire around down in there. And if someone, that's how he kind of kept everybody in check. And it's, I'll never forget, man, seeing something that majestic. And then we pull out of the gate. I'll never forget this. And uh, it's just poor. Like desert, I'm, there were some guys with casting nets, and it looked like a ditch, but it was full of water, and they were trying to pull fish out of that. I mean, you couldn't it's even see disgusting dark brown gray color of water. Yeah, exactly. Oh. And then we were chunking a bunch of kids were playing soccer in the, in the open field right there. I remember there was one little kid; he had a little half shirt on, and that was it. <laughs> right, right. That was all he's wearing—just right, that right. half shirt, covered in shoulders. Yeah. You know? 
And then uh, there was a mound of dirt about 20 feet high. It was big, and there was a hole in it. And, man, we were tossing MREs out of the back of the thing. And this family came running out of there, out of this hole, hmm. a mound of dirt. And this lady, it looked like she was waving at us, but her, she, was, she had some kind of deformity because her hand looked like her, a foot. Was just, and she was waving, saying, thank you for the, for the MREs and stuff like that. And just the level of... You, you got a dude living in a castle like that, man, and then a level. You got somebody living in a the dirt that a had to be pulled squalor. out, right? The dirt that had to be pulled out of there so you could build the castle. That kind of thing, man. Just right then and there, like literally a line walked, drove out of the gate, and it was just unbelievable, man. So yeah, I understand what you're talking about with the kids. I, that's why I'm really looking forward to talking to Jeremy because I think he's going to add up that perspective that is so unique. I mean, we bring a unique perspective because of what we've all seen, where we've been, but man, this this guy is literally on the front line. No, the front line of of the war that's still raging, the war that ISIS is raging against the people of of Syria and Iraq. This guy's on the front line of that. And he's doing it and what blows me away. This is the crazy one. I mean, you you his family is there. You read the stuff online, and his fa- he lives there with his family too. I mean, this guy is a hundred percent complete investment. Walk the walk, right? Walk the <laughs> walk, and and this guy is walking the walk. Wizard, What's, could you could yeah. you t- talk about him a little bit and give everybody, give our listeners the background? The, the high road is the hardest road to walk, right? Absolutely, the righteous path, the Jericho Mile. I'm going to go, uh, I like this part that came off the website here. It really describes what they've got going on. In the middle of the Iraq war, Jeremy and Jessica Courtney found themselves with their two children caught up in the turmoil, just hoping to make a difference. After an encounter with a father whose little girl was dying from a heart defect, they began to investigate options for helping and learning that untold thousands of children across Iraq had a similar need, waiting in line for heart surgery in a country without a qualified heart surgeon. With the help of their closest friends, they dove in to save the lives of as many as they could, but sending children abroad proved expensive and cumbersome. It failed to make an impact in the systemic needs of Iraqi hospitals, the place where these children really could be saved. Despite Fatwa's death, death threats, bombings, imprisonments, and intense living conditions, Jeremy and his team persevered to overcome years of hostilities and distrust in an effort to eradicate the backlog of thousands upon thousands of Iraqi children waiting in line for much-needed heart surgery. That's just where it starts, though. That's the foot in the door right there. Apparently, they, they did this for eight years, and then ISIS kind of came on the scene. Now, his company, Preemptive Love, it, it really expanded dramatically once that, you know, was that around about Conflict. 2014, 2013? Yep. So today, their AO has expanded from Iraq, which is still primary, but they're also, they have some activity in Syria, Iran, and Libya. Um, they've, they're doing food relief now. They're doing a lot of food relief for victims uh, of ISIS. Uh, they're also handing out small business grants to help people, I, I, I guess, you know, stand themselves up, support themselves. Education for at-risk children and peacemaking in, in conflict zones, opening dialogues uh, of the fundamental root causes. They've delivered over a million pounds of food to ISIS victims, uh, started 95 of these businesses mentioned before. And to this point, they've provided over 3,000 medical life life-saving medical procedures for children I, I i hear that dude and i'm blowing away i mean well, i cannot I, I, most wait people to... try to go over and and uh get food food water maybe teach them how to read he goes over there heart surgery that's 
Dude, and, and I've, I've worked with a lot of different NGOs. And in fact, when I started my kids thing, I, I looked at working with Doctors Without Borders. I thought I looked at USAID and I looked at, you know, all these aid organizations. But the one thing there's, they're, they're humongous entities and, and they're not very effective. This guy, it seems like is literally, I mean, he's, he's in the trenches, man. I mean, he's on the front line. Like, he's like this, follow me. <laughs> and, do, and and people on his team are like, we're going where to do what? Right. Well, we had, to, we had to push this whole timeline to the left because he is headed back early. I mean, he, he's going to be standing there in two days from now, right? Two or three. Yeah, he's in Mosul in two or three days. Think Think about that, man. Listen, if you're a listener on this show, and this is your first show, Stand by because you're about ready to hear some information that potentially is going to change your life, right? It could be the spark, the, the first little fire, the fuel that gets inside your gut and, and you speak to, it speaks to you. Jeremy speaks to you in a way that you say, I need to do more. I need to do more with my life. I need to serve others at the highest level, man. If you're if you're coming back and you're you're a regular listen, thank you for coming back. We appreciate it. But stand by, stand by once again to hear another never quit story or stories that potentially is gonna change your life. And that's the true blessing of why we do this show. So, gents, what do you think? Let's get Jeremy on. Let's do it. Yep. What I love about this, Marcus, what really fires me up more than anything else out there is that I don't have to stare at this monitor and wonder whether or not it's going to be scratchy or fadey or anything else like like Nick's Palmasiano's Palmasiano's interview or 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 Andre. Di- oh, Andre. Poor Andre, oh, poor man. Andre. Poor Andre Arvlowski. We love you, Pitbull, oh, but we couldn't so. understand you, bud. We love you I so mean, much. Look, when I, I'm from the South, and and you know, when I when I get fired up, it gets ridiculous, right? I mean, oh, dude. Andre and I were both getting fired up. I couldn't understand myself. Not a damn word, I think. And But he still made a lot of poignant did, statements, man. though. We love you. I just don't want to get beat up by him if he hears this. All right. Yeah, so ha- having the fact Again, that... Again, we're taping it. It's it- awesome. We can cut that part out. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I'm going to leave that. No, You're going to leave like, that in? Now he, yeah. has, you know, he has those black men. Every time, we, every time we tell him to cut something out... A hot mic. You know, he chews that over. Hot mic, hot mic, prank caller, prank caller. He chews that over into a blackmail file. He's like, oh, they don't want that? (laughs) Well, that that file's already massive, (laughs) right? (laughs) Basically the whole show. (laughs) Many times we know that it's press play and when we're just going back And by the way, hey, man, this isn't an opening. This is how it is all the time in here. I mean, this is literally the the energy about it. It's awesome. He's staring at him, dude. I see. We can reach out and touch him right now. This is this is different level. This is right because now we have to pay. You got oh, everything. Right? Got to watch it all. No, we, uh, yeah. we can't we, say LOL and not be not laughing about it. <laughs> and we know we can see his hands. We don't know what he's doing. We know we can't see. We can see he's not. I got a computer, so we don't know if he's watching yeah. cartoons or anything. <laughs> and there really is a Spider Man behind me. There really is. Yeah. That's not a lie. That's not a lie. All right, all right. So let me just get to it, man. Jeremy, brother, I'm gonna take a serious turn right here and. and I did this when we had Tim Ballard on as well. Um, 
you're on a mission in your life and that mission is is it's massive and to be able to have you here with us to share you who you are and and why you're doing this and the importance of it and what it means and mo- most importantly to to help our listeners redefine a concept of love that they might have forgotten in terms of purpose and passion in life man it is a privilege to have you at the TNQ podcast. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks. Honored to be here with you guys. Absolutely. Um, my wife, man, she said there's something real special about you. So she started telling me about you and, and uh, man, I'm honored that you're here. I'm, I mean, I wish we'd have got you here sooner. Thanks for being the first one through the gates. Yeah. Kind of deal. Absolutely. Um, pleasure so to have you. No pressure on you. This no is worries. all, you got to set the standard hey. now. You know that. All right. Up for it. All right, all right, cool. Enough of this mushy stuff. Mad minute time. Oh, brother, you know I love to get mushy, though. That's what I'm all about. <laughs> I'm all about the mushiness, man. I, I, Jeremy, they break my balls all the time about being mushy, man. And it drives me nuts. I love it. All right, so, Jeremy, what we do is like in any great conversation or developing a relationship, you got to develop rapport with people. I'm sure you have to do it all the time in your work overseas, man. It's that rapport, that ability to connect, to find that place of trust and honesty, and and then you're willing to, to do some sacrifice. For us, we our rapport building happens in this thing we call the Mad Minute. Now, right. our Mad Minute in, in our former lives is a little bit different. It's all about gaining quick information, potentially, that we can use that won't kill us, right? Here, it's about just having some fun, getting to know you on a different way, not so serious way. I'm sure we'll get into that, but just to have some fun, and we're going to rapid fire some questions, answer however you want, as fun as you want, or as little, or don't answer whatever you want to do. It's just to, to, to ease into this, this, uh, uh, this interview in a, in a fun way. So are, are you ready for this? Let's do it. All right, Marcus. All right. Fire away, bud. Ready for the first car. What's that? Your first car. Oh, man, a Honda Civic beat up 1978 piece of trash that was almost falling apart. I think I paid $500 for it. Wore that thing out for a Honda about, Civic? It yeah. probably still runs. It's probably yeah, still it was amazing. Right. It was amazing. Yeah, the, the, everything else falls off around it, right? It was amazing. It's kind of just, yeah. <laughs> it keeps going. Yeah. Who did you get it from? My uncle, who, I don't know, he probably grew up with it. I mean, it was a, it was a phenomenal <laughs> car. Down. Yeah. How long did you drive it for? I probably drove it. Maybe ten years, something. Not, wow. Maybe not quite that. No, not quite that. I actually traded it in for my wife's wedding ring. That's what it was. So I drove it about five years. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Though. Nice. Oh, you, yeah. You that's go. worth oh, it. So let me ask sure. you this: Now that I brought this first car, every time you, if you look at your wife's wedding ring, sometimes that car pop in your head. No, actually, I never thought about it again. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. He was like, "I'm done." Right. <laughs> 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 All right. All right, wizard, fire away, bud. You live in Iraq. I do. Correct. Yep. Give us one thing. You like about Iraq, living in Iraq, and one thing you you don't like. Oh man, uh, you know I like the people. Honestly, like I love I love the people that my kids get to grow up uh, alongside. And you know, I think um, people often say that you live in Iraq like it's crazy that you're raising your family there. But the truth is, people are raising their families in Iraq. Every day, you know, there's 35 million people raising their, their oh, families in Iraq. For, so. Since, I don't know, the beginning? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Since, since we started raising families yeah. together in civilizations, yeah. right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's actually really an honor to be one of the 35 million people in Iraq raising their kids mm-hmm. and, you know, trying to, trying to make the world a better place. Um, what I don't like is coming home from, well, any part of the day around this time of year, summertime, 
120 degrees outside, oh, yeah, right? and there's oh. no electricity, no water, and there's really no relief on the horizon. You know, for like 16 hours, the rest of the day, you're not going to see any electricity come to the house, and you're just going to have to sweat it out. Yeah, that's that's not the most fun, but mm. we make it through those times. That's, that's, that's why dry, man jams like a, are so awesome. That's why man jams, I love man jams, oh, man. Great. Oh, Dude, I used to man. wear them around every camp. I, I was never in the Iraq. Iraqi, but, man jammies? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, every place I'd be in Afghanistan, no matter what, I'd throw those things on. I'd go walk around. People would be like, Rutherford, why aren't you in your uniform? i go, this is my uniform, baby. I'm cool. I mean, it's kind of one of these deals. If, if you're overseas in a different place and you see the locals do it, I mean, all of them. They are, know something. Obviously, there's something. That, <laughs> they're not dumb. Hey, they actually you. know how to dress yeah. for the weather. You're, you're <laughs> a three-piece Versace suit, man. Jesus, you look real cool, but good God, you're about to die. All right? <laughs> I mean, that's truth, dude. It's not straight yeah, I used to make fun truth. of the same thing, too. You had to put one on. When we got a Donham on the first time when you go, and you're like, yeah. oh, wait a minute now. Come on, there's something up in here, right? This is the deal. <laughs> I could never figure out the tie string, dude. That took me like three oh trips. Oh my god, man! When they when I was in the village just to get off, that, that was my I couldn't figure that out either. And the, when they the, gave you your drawers, yeah, when they dude. gave me my drawers, the little kids were la well, my hands were messed up too. It was the biggest deal, but the little kids would laugh at me so hard because I couldn't tie my own pants. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, you can fit three or four people inside those okay, pants. I mean, it's, yeah, a, it's okay. a big waistband. Yeah, right. So. Yeah. That it, it, right? I mean, you're like, wait a minute, this this wrong one. This is, <laughs> this is the sheet. <laughs> what are you guys saying to me, huh? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, if you could live in any decade in human history, oh man, what decade would it be? Probably the '60s. Oh really? For the jazz. Oh, you Miles Davis fan? Coltrane, oh, Miles. Oh, Monterey yeah. Pop Festival, Love 1967. Huh. Oh, my gosh. Best album, best jazz album all time. Man, I'm I'm a kind of blue kind of guy, and uh, now I know why I love you, brother. Love Supreme, probably oh. on the Coltrane side. Oh, yeah. dude, this huh. guy, he knows he, he squared away. He kind of looks the part, though. I believe it. I believe he digs jazz. What you don't think I love jazz? <laughs> Is that what you're saying no. to me, man? Well, so, I, I can hear Jimmy. <laughs> I can hear Jimmy. You know, what movie was yeah. that? I can hear Jimmy. I can hear Jimmy. Oh, I was just watching. What was I just? That's I was, the greatest ever, man. Dude, that defines our generation right there. Growing up like that, man. I can hear Jimmy. Uh, I like. What era in Iraq would you like to live in? Oh man, did, did you see that one coming? No, because uh, the, the last one, I was like, man, that's because it talk about change, right? That's a long time. Feels like a very uh, that's that's a rough. There's there's parts of so many different areas that I'd love to be a part Man, of. Because there used to be grass and trees out there everywhere. Right. And, I mean, it was a cradle of life, and that stuff apparently was flowing. I mean, there are things about pre-Saddam Iraq I'd love to see. There are things about Saddam's Iraq that I'd love to see. There are things about Ottoman Iraq. You know, the yeah. the, the land yeah. of the Ottoman era. I mean, it's it's been through so many iterations. As I sit here today. Um, we are a couple days out from when ISIS has just blown up the, the Grand Nuri Mosque in Mosul. Man, this is an 850-year-old structure that predates Iraq. It predates the Ottomans. I mean, it goes back to the, the Assyrians, Mesopotamia. I'd, I'd love to see when that thing was built. I'd love to see when its crooked minaret started, you know, like tilting Tilt over, over a little right, bit. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an amazing place with a ton of history we, we were talking about this the other day when the mesopotamians and sumerians i mean that's the kind of the beginning of it when 
when people kind of formed into a city. But obviously, the technology they had, it's predated before that. We just don't know it because it was either destroyed when the earth yep. uh, recycled or by wars, just like this, uh, the mosque. And it, that, that is true, man. That's, it's the craziest. People are like, man, you can blow your mind out just thinking about how, how far back it goes, really. Mm-hmm. They found that, that Antikythrin machine, that 2,000-year-old planetary computer mm-hmm. thing, man. And that, it just, it's amazing the, the, when people, the archaeologists that dig up that stuff to see how far back it really does go, because we don't know. For sure. And that's the place. Okay. Obviously, you work in the realm of charities, non-government organizations, aid organizations, whatever you want to call them. Do you have a person you look to as maybe a hero in that field that has gone before you, oh, someone question, that you really dude. look up to? Wow, that's a phenomenal question. Um, man, honestly, they're, they're the unsung heroes that don't, whose names you don't know, whose names I don't know. They're, it's hmm. easy. We all, we all need like a face for a movement, for an idea to kind of hang our hopes on and inspire us. But it's the it's the Afghani people, it's the the Libyan people, it's the Iraqi people who no one will ever know their names, no one will ever hear about them, and often led by strong women who go out into hmm. the violence, who go out into the field, who go out into their neighborhoods day after day after day and do the work. They're the ones bringing the medicine, they're the ones bringing the food, they're the ones bringing the hope, they're the ones getting their kids educated to the degree that we've got strong women at the table, you know, peace tracks along with that uh, that factor to the degree that women are left at home and kind of sequestered away and don't have a place at the table, I mean, you're going to see significantly more violence and political intractability in the situations mm. that we're trying to solve. So I, I think it's... Testosterone buttonheads right yeah, there, I, I think it's the women, but, but certainly, I mean, there are amazing men engaged in this kind of work too, but yeah, let's just say the women of conflict all across the world where we've God walked and worked. Saying that, that's an awesome response. I, I mean, I, and there's a reason why God put women because we'd kill each other. I mean, that's why we fight. <laughs> we do. I mean, that's we do the, kill the, each the, other that, genetically. That that we can look into each other, man, and be friends and boys. But I mean, we'll wolf pack mentality, right? Because of right. testosterone, right? Plain and simple. And they they bring that. They can pierce through all that mm. and see into us and how to calm calm that flame right and then just by standing around and that is exactly right if you cut that out then there will never be peace no i you're never. spot on so the question becomes in my mind then if 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 women are so essential to peace how come they're not more involved in the peace process right especially with these cultural these 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 male dominated cultures right it almost begs the question do we really want peace i mean in some of these i, I think you're going down the line that was in my head, right? Do these cultures, these, these, these who are so historically used to bringing forth a, a, the, the power distribution through that violence, and they've suppressed the women as a relevant piece of, of how governance is used to keep it enough out of there so they don't find peace. So peace isn't a relevant part of their objective. But, all right, let's, mm-hmm. let's change directions and... and I'm, yeah, I don't even know. Man, I don't. <laughs> no, it was it was an interesting point, and I think it, it's a testament, and, and it, it's a nice segue to Jeremy, because Jeremy is literally in the heart of that culture, the the necessity for women. He watches women do this every every single day, and to be able to deliver the peace, the will, the love that enables you to accomplish your mission. Before we get into that, though, 
got to start out with the essence of what the show is. And and I'm I'm very anxious for this part right here. Our listeners, Jeremy, are here to hear what your greatest never quit story or stories is because it's the thing that they're searching for. It's the thing that maybe something in your narrative, something in your life, something that had meaning to you that put you on this path is going to resonate with them in such a way that they might follow in your footsteps. And so please, without further ado, what's your greatest never quit story? Yeah, man. I mean, I think we're still living it in a lot of ways. Um, We haven't quit. So we moved into Iraq in the middle of the Iraq war, um, kind of the height of sectarian violence, Sunni, Shia bloodletting taking place all over the country. And uh, I had no idea what I was getting into. I'd I was not cut out for this place. I wasn't properly trained, indoctrinated, prepared, anything. But I, I was seeing the headlines playing out like you guys were. You were living some of them at the time, I think. And um, I, I wanted to be a part of it on some level. Huh. I, I wanted to be a part of the solution. Uh, I didn't know what the solution was. I couldn't tell you or map it out. But I knew that things were a mess. I knew that I had friends like you guys over there doing your part to try and make it better, but it wasn't going well by anyone's account, you know, kind of in the middle of those years. So I I took a couple of trips in, ultimately ended up moving into Iraq. And within just a couple of uh, weeks, my wife, we have a one-year-old little girl, we move into Iraq in the middle of this scene. And I'm in a hotel. You guys know how this goes. If you're not on base, if you're a civilian like me, you know, it's it's often the hotels that... (laughs) that have any kind of life right. in the middle of war. Right. So it's like electricity may be out across the whole city, but there's a couple of clutch hotels who have electricity, running water, internet, yeah. Yeah. Uh, coffee, yeah. cable news. And a you truckload know. of expats, right? Yeah, and that's, it's like <laughs> mm-hmm. parliament. You know, it's where all everyone is congregates in these hotels. So I'd go to these hotels, and I'd, that was like my office. And I was working in the cafe at the hotel one day, like I did every day on my laptop. And you know, I was writing proposals to try and help people, whatever. And the chai guy kind of saddles up to the table, sets my cup of tea down on the table, and kind of hovers awkwardly over my shoulder for a minute. And he finally gets up the nerve, you know, to kind of say, you've been coming to my cafe for a while now. Can I ask you a favor? And I'm like, yeah, man, go ahead. He said, well, I I know you're an American. Uh, We've talked about that. I know you came here to help us. Would you please, like, help my family? Not just us, like all the Iraqis, but would you help exactly me my cousin has this, this little girl, she's about yay big now, and he holds up his hand and, you know, like maybe a six-year-old's height. She's about yay big now. But when she was born, she was born with this huge hole in her heart. And after all these years of Saddam Hussein's chemical warfare and war with Iran and UN sanctions against our country that decimated so much of our infrastructure and Al-Qaeda killing off our doctors and nurses, just assassinating people left and right, we don't have a hospital, a doctor anywhere in Iraq that can save wow. her life. You're an American. I know you came here to help us. Would you please help my little cousin? And that wasn't my mission. That wasn't my agenda. I didn't know anything about that. I tried to hold this guy kind of at arm's length. And I'm like, man, I'm, I'm doing some good stuff over here. Right, right. Like, don't hate me. <laughs> but th- this isn't my thing. Like, I don't know how to bring surgeons in to brave the bombs and bullets and, and help your cousin. I don't know how to get your cousin out of Iraq into a, like America to get a surgery. This is just so far outside of my comfort zone. Right. And, and he was just very humble. You know, I think he could have like, he could have blasted me. You guys know those oh, guys yeah, yeah. who, and I understand their pain, 
but they, they'll just blast us, right? For like, you came here, you, you promised us freedom, you promised us democracy, and we don't have any of it now. He could have been that guy. He chose not to go that route. He, he chose to like more, take a more humble approach. And he was like, look, she's dead to us already. Like she's a dead girl walking. That's not what we want for her, but that's sort of how she is. We feel like she's on this very short leash. Matt, you're like thinking of this, what if you fail? And I'm just saying, what if you succeed? Like, what if you tried and you actually helped her? What if huh. you actually did something that could save her life? In that moment, you're thinking that. You no, know, he's like kind of coaching oh, me he's along. Coaching he's coaching like, you to think He's like that. drawing Whoa, this. Oh, hey, they're the best barters heavy, on the planet, right? That's brilliant. They're the best yeah. barters on the planet. Yeah. Negotiations. Yeah, yeah, man, they can sit there and, and this is great. It was brilliant. So he's, <laughs> you know, he's, he's coaxing me along and calling me out. He's, he's calling out my better self, truly. I mean, Absolutely. I'm operating from a place of fear, ultimately. I'm afraid I'm going to let him down. I'm afraid I'm going to make America look bad. I'm afraid I'm going to make you guys look bad. You know, like another American makes a promise, fails a kid who's going to die, you know? And so it's like, it's just better to not engage than to engage and fail. That's how my whole process was working. And he's just calling me out. He's like, no, come on, come down the road with yeah. me a little bit. What if you succeed? So I agreed a couple of days later to meet cousin. So come back to the hotel a couple of days later, cousin dad comes through the double doors he gives the chai guy the what's up head nod when he comes in through the double doors. And as he rounds the corner, Cousin Dad has his little girl at his side. I mean, he's bringing a, a gun to a knife fight, right? I mean, like, yeah, I'm, you're I'm, done. I'm, I'm done, right? You're done. I'm sitting at the table. I see him coming through the cafe, and I'm done before he ever sits down. Sits down, we give our salams, and she starts coloring, pulls out a napkin, and starts coloring on a napkin right across from me. My baby girl's a year old at that at point. At that time, wow. She's six. My girl's got big brown eyes. She's got big brown eyes. And it's just so easy to put myself in dad's shoes. It's like, man, how many doors would I knock on to save my baby's life? How many street corners would I stand on and debase myself and beg anyone who comes by to give me wow. a dollar so I could save my daughter's life? And so it was just a real moment of like dad connection and empathy that I, I saw myself in him. And uh, I had no idea what I was doing any better on day two than I did on day one, but I just agreed to kind of take their file and knock around and see what I could do. And one thing led to another, and to my great surprise, we actually found kind of a, a, no. a pathway for this girl, a solution for this girl. And dad must have been so excited. I started getting phone calls on my private cell phone. Hello, mister, you saved baby. Hello, help me. You know, like different people were calling me left and right. People were that fast. People were showing up at my gate. <laughs> in a taxi, like in taxis, shoving that. babies in front of my face. Like the, the taxi driver had known that this guy said he was going to the hospital to no take his baby way. for a heart checkup. And he's like, hold on, let's take a detour over here. There's some bald American who's helping kids. <laughs> I, know a guy. I know a guy, right? How, they always know a guy. Yeah, I know a guy, exactly, right? I got a guy. I got a guy. Right, so I you became, became, I became the, guy. the guy for some of this stuff. And, you know, it's... Iraq is 35 million people, but it's a small village, right? Like right. everyone knows everyone. So, um, yeah, so I became the guy for this little niche thing for a while. And that wasn't what we moved there to do. It was completely overwhelming. I mean, as we went through it, the files of these kids who were just waiting in line to die just started stacking up on our desk. And at one point, we just had to look at each other and go, wow, this is not what we came here to deal well, with. Why were uh, you there? Uh, hey, really, that's God's will. That's, I mean, if you went in Rome, what, however you want to say it, right. you fall into it. That's right. The, ah, the, God, that's it's right. 30, it's 30, you said it perfect, 35 million small. That's how you reference it because, man, I can tell you and then just exactly what happened to you. And 
you try to think people like there's a war over there so everything stops and the war comes in that's well man they're living normal life through the war so and then if if the war catches them on that day that that's right you always wonder how it's war right how did a car bomb go off and kill so many people in a market i just figured everyone was staying at home hunkered down it's like no life goes on what were you doing in iraq in the first place if i can ask i mean we we moved to be a part of responding to the humanitarian crisis that was okay a direct result of the war and the terrorism and the militias combating each other you know that whole melee that kind of broke out was doing the same thing more or less then that we see now it was displacing people from their homes it was causing rampant fear there was uh you know the one-off bombings here and there every day across the country and people were getting pushed into camps where they had to live and their homes were being destroyed and you know that whole scene I didn't know anything about it, and I didn't know what to do about it. I just knew we needed to be about it. And so, huh. so that we moved in, and we just groped our way through the dark. Where we first found our, our first foothold was kind of with this one little girl. Um, so we kind of went down that track for a while, about eight years. We worked solidly with kids like this. Eight years? Just doing heart surgeries and, and trying to develop Iraqi healthcare system, and then ISIS came in. And so we were, we were rebuilding... Wow. hospitals and training doctors and nurses across the country to help their kids so that, that they would go on to do tens of thousands of surgeries. And it wasn't about us being the hero. It was about making these Iraqis better equipped at their jobs so they could serve their community for decades to come. And then ISIS springs up from inside Iraq and kind of pours in from outside Iraq. And ultimately, you guys know, overrun about a third of the country. Mm-hmm. We've got a massive operation going in Syria. And suddenly, heart surgeries for a you know, a couple thousand kids was not the most important thing in anyone's not mind anymore. We've got f- almost 4 million people pushed out of their homes. We've got cities like Fallujah occupied. I mean, we were actually, I was on my way to Fallujah when the mayor was killed and we got locked out because, you know, basically the whole thing was under coming under ISIS control. Um, proto, You're in the vehicle sort of proto-ISIS control. And they said, wow. you can't come in right now. Like, we were going to serve kids and do surgeries in Fallujah. And we'd been working in Fallujah for years up until that point. And, and so, you know, you got places like Fallujah, Mosul, Tikrit, under ISIS control. And we were just trying to figure out how to pivot and help. Okay, so you know this. When, when a group like ISIS comes in, uh, it pushes people out. When a military comes in to attack back against a group like Al-Qaeda or ISIS or Nusra, you know, it sends people running. But there's always people who want to stay at home. There's always people who don't want hurricane rolls right. in. They don't want to surrender their sovereignty to go live in some camp somewhere under some different ethnic group or different religious sex control. And so a lot of people just stay hunkered down and hope to survive. Uh, that's kind of where we found our specialty. So where bombs are still falling and snipers are still sniping and some people are running away from the violence, we're kind of running in and trying to see what we can do to get to the front lines to, to provide medicine, food, water, right there to those people who may just be liberated, but, but they want to stay at home. They don't want to displace. They don't actually want to become refugees. Right. They don't want to enter that whole fray. And so we're working at the headwaters of this refugee crisis, providing food and water and medicine and jobs, trying to, we, we describe it as first in, last to leave. You know, we're trying to get there to help people before they become refugees. We're trying to stick around in these communities to help them get their jobs and their markets and their schools and their hospitals restarted so that they can stay and build their society. They don't, they don't want to come to America. No, at all. Can, can I take a step back first? And, and that first girl, the first few girls, the first, sta- the first initial stack, 
Were there any defeats in, in those that made you go, I'm out of my mind mm. with your wife, let's quit, let's redirect back where we were before, and this is too much, it's too crazy, we, we got to stop this? Yeah, I mean, I think the one of the, those early kids that we met, uh, maybe the earliest kids that we met, had relatively simple conditions um, in the general scheme of heart, of heart surgery. surgery. Right. What we would later come to understand is there's all kinds of complexity that, that you can encounter. So you can have the kid who needs just mm. a simple hole patched up, and that's like a slam dunk. And then you can have a kid whose heart is turned around, flipped backwards on the wrong side of the chest, and that's like you know a one in a million shot. So we started with the relatively easy kids, and that, that kind of drew us in further. And then you start getting the, the complex things thrown at you, and it's like, oh, man, we lost so many kids like oh, that. Wow. And it's like when you're trying to raise money, when you're trying to inspire a community to keep handing over their hard-earned dollars to you, like you've helped 10 kids and one of them dies. It's like, oh, should we, should we bury that story and not tell anyone that no, a bunch can't. of donor dollars went to a kid who mm. died? And we just chose to be like completely transparent about everything. We told the stories of the kids who died just as passionately as we told the stories of the kids who lived. And I think we, it allowed us to kind of never quit. It, it, it allowed us to redefine what is failure. We didn't fail on that kid. We, we succeeded. It, uh, yeah, I like that. We're talking about ending the game here, man. Ending the, that took it to you till it couldn't go any further. That's death, right? It held on and you guys held on till the end. Man, I would imagine, I don't know this for a fact, but, you know, if I donated money for that and, and you're like, hey, he died. I'm like, damn, you know, man, we gave it all we could, right? And you're like, yeah, that's all I needed to hear, right? Yeah. Oh. What, what, and, and, and part of how we thought about success was how can we not rob this dad's dignity in the process? You know, like we could donate all the money and make dad feel like a charity case. But we never wanted hmm. to do that. We always called mom and dad to say, what can you give to save your child's life? And if it was $100 or $1,000, we would work with mom and dad so that they had a stake in saving That's their cool. kid's life. Because I didn't want the story at the end of the day to be some 21-year-old kid who's grown up this, his whole life with a scar on his chest. And his story was, yeah, some white American guy came and saved my life. No, I wanted it to be, yeah, my mom and dad, they gave That's everything cool. for me yeah. in the midst of war to save my life. And we were able to partner with these friends from afar and they saved my life together. Like I wanted dad and mom to always have that, that, that stakeholdership in their kids' story. Well, that's a huge honor. a huge thing over there. Massive. It, but but it's, it came from him, though. Yeah. I mean, the recognition that, to know that that was a critical aspect of the totality of success, that's critical. Who taught you that? Who taught you that that's an important aspect of the process? Where did you learn this? I, th I think mostly I just learned it from them. I mostly I learned by watching how they honored each other, um, the things that made them feel embarrassed or shamed, as they might say it, or a, a lack of empowerment. I, we listen. We, we just listen obsessively. That's what we do. We listen. We don't go in with an agenda. I didn't arrive in Iraq with agenda. I actually arrived as a blank slate in a lot of ways. And I let the people of Iraq and then later the people of Libya and the people of Syria, I let them write their story on me. And then I took that in many ways and said, okay, how can we partner with you to help you accomplish what you want to accomplish in the world? What, what, how difficult was it then? Because obviously 
those stories are overwhelming. I remember a story when I was there in 2010 in Afghanistan. I'd never been to Iraq, but in Afghanistan, working with an interpreter who told me the life story. And he, you know, for what was something like five generations, right? People in his family had been getting wiped out by a, per, a perverted sense of Islam, right? And, and that's the way I, I, I see it. And, and I got sucked in and I wanted to help this guy. And I remember I was giving him cash and I was trying to connect him with people in, you know, State Department that might help him with, you know, all this stuff. And you get, you get pulled into it. How, what's the flip side in terms of how do you then take these stories that very naturally the dad to dad thing? I mean, that's, a, gee, I got two little girls myself. I would have been like, I'm in, here you go, you know, both feet. How do you then take that story and tell, the team of doctors, wherever you're recruiting the doctors from and convince them, especially because I know you had to tap into some doctors that were from places that were kind of enemies of, of the people you're trying to help. That's a great point because from what I remember, right? That's one of the hardest things is is here in in the States, man, you walk into a hospital, there'll be a doctor that's from India, from Pakistan, everywhere. When you walk in some of those other countries, there can only be a doctor or, or, or mm. the guy was like, hey, I, right. where are you from? I, right. man, I don't know if you can work on me. And then the religion, you That's know, right. it's all those dividing. It's just funny how all being a badass and all those party lines break down and you don't give a damn about any of that, man, when your kid's on the line. Like, man, I don't care what you did or yeah. what, what, what you said about me back in the day or if your granddad killed mine, man, man, I need some help here. All right, my kid's dying. We can talk about this later. <laughs> and then you say this kid and then like, you know what? Life dead. That, it's over. You got it. That's and, it. And you experienced that. Oh, absolutely. So, the main thing we do is not heart surgery. In fact, now today, that's, that's a tiny, tiny part of what we do. That was sort of like our, that was our boot camp. That's what we came up through well, in a lot of ways. That's how you cut your teeth, uh, right? Right. And, and that experience. One of the things we learned along the way, and one of the ways that we've always sort of positioned ourselves is to try and be about reconciliation. Not, not to try and primarily be about delivering food, or primarily be about delivering medicine or water or jobs, but to primarily be about reconciliation. It is preemptive love, for sure. And be- because if, look, and I, I think this is what makes us different from a lot of other organizations, um, you can deliver food and do nothing to touch core issues of what's going on in a country. You can, you can host a peacemaking seminar and do nothing to, host, <laughs> to, to, to address what's going on. Right, right. Peace is not made across m- marble boardroom tables you know like that's that's not where peace is made and peace is not made by the un hosting a a seminar where some guy stands at the front of the room and tells people how to reconcile with each other peace is made when we go out together side by side shoulder to shoulder hand in hand and work do the hard work together and so to to your point marcus about (laughs) how a lot of this partisan stuff and sectarian stuff goes out the window when your kids are are on the line um and one of the most beautiful stories we experienced is we, we were trying to bake in reconciliation to everything we were doing. So we would try to make sure that our surgery teams were a, a nice mix of Kurd and Arab, Christian, Muslim, Sunni, Shia, Turkmen, intentionally. Wow. We, would, we would take kids from one region to another region. And Iraq is kind of broadly divided in, in certain places where you have like mm-hmm. a whole swath of land that's generally Sunni and a whole swath of land that's generally Shia and a whole part that's generally Kurdish. And if you live at home most of your life, you're not going to ever meet someone who's from the other side, which makes it very easy. You become very susceptible to those simple narratives that say, those people over there, they hate us and they are like this and we are different mm-hmm. like this. 
And if you never interact with the other, then it makes it a lot easier to, to hate and ultimately kill each other. And so we would deliberately try and like pull a Sunni family from Fallujah and take them to a Shia place like Najaf right. and, and invite the dad, would you hand your child over to the enemy and literally place your daughter's heart in the hands of the enemy and let the enemy save your daughter's life. That's heavy. And, and it's exactly what you said, Marcus, that if, if that's my only option, I'll do it. And when, when Shia doctor comes out of the operating room with your daughter and says, alhamdulillah, praise God, she's alive, she's going to be okay, you'll kiss his feet and go back home to Fallujah wow. and tell a different story than anyone mm-hmm. has ever told in your neighborhood. It's not like we were told. They're not all evil. They don't all hate us. We can be at peace with one another. And so these kids become these ambassadors for a much bigger story, these ambassadors for peace. And you know this, there's, there's scars on the bodies of people across Iraq from decades of war. What this has given us an opportunity to do is place a new kind of scar down the chest of a child that, that for once doesn't stand as a scar because this group attacked that group, but because this group served that group and loved that group and, and it really forges a new way together. I think that's, that's such a brilliant concept that you're employing that. And something else, something else I want to touch on, reading on the website, there's a quote you put on there, we're not the answer to other people's problems, they are. As well as you say, everything we do is about building local capacity, investing in local institutions, and strengthening communities that will endure well after we're gone. So that really seems to be, at least from what I saw, another principle that your organization operates off of. To me, that seems like... a relatively unique idea maybe it's not but can you talk about if so why that's so important to the work you're doing and i would assume how that is you know you feel that that is is critical for the long-term sustainment of of any you know progress that you make yeah i think there's a a couple of ways that it plays out or a couple ways to look at it for better or worse the aid industry is an industry just like any other thing. And yes, it, is. it can be very competitive. There is potentially a ton of money at stake. And how... How much was it for Haiti? It was $436 billion that was invested. And how much got to the streets of Port-au-Prince or Miraguan? Uh, yeah, that was pretty... Almost nothing comparatively. I mean, it's crazy. It is a business. And so all these organizations... And I think some of them are well-intentioned. I don't think this is a black-white, good-evil thing. It's, it's a mixed thing. It's, a, huh. it's, it's not, I don't think these, yeah, anyway, it's a mixed thing. But you descend on a place. You descend on a, a place like Iraq or Syria or Haiti. And, and you're, you may start out pure, you may not, I don't know. But, but you want to do some good. Um, one of the easiest ways, perhaps, to do it is to hire as many locals as you can, bring them into your orbit, bring them into your sphere, pay them exorbitantly well so that you can build your footprint, build your programming, stake your flag in as many places as possible, and compel the UN to give you more and more and more money. Hmm. That's not our model. And I don't, know, I don't know if our model will keep us slower or smaller or whatever. It's just not a huge consideration for us because I've just seen that other model. I just call it the big aid model. The, the big aid model seems to fail over and over and over again, or, or at least I, I think it's suboptimal. And so what we're doing I mean, is we're saying, look, there were Iraqis sub-optimal. here before us. There were Syrians here before us. There were Libyans here before us. They know their neighborhoods. They know their tribes. They know their religion. They know the very localized expression of their religion that's different from one region away. Let's work with them. Rather than cannibalizing them 
and bringing them into our house for a minute, but we're only going to be here a minute, whether it's a Mm -hmm. year or 10 years, it's still a minute in the grand scheme of things. Let's invest in them. Let's build up their organizations. Let's make sure that we leave behind some kind of civil society when all is said and done. And, and let's let them build their footprint. Let's let them park their flag in more places. Let's make them more equipped to deal with, with the situations that are around them. They're smart, brilliant people who know things better than we do in so many cases. Uh, but they're, they need help. They need support. They need partnership. They don't need us to come in and cannibalize and, and sort of For posi- the numbers. And position yeah. ourselves as experts in a region that we just arrived in a few minutes ago. Absolutely. I mean, we, I mean, I remember when we first hit the ground in Afghanistan, you know, we had no idea the social customs, the tribes, the, the variations, even down to the, like you were talking about the different variations in Islam itself. Does Islam play a, a massive role? And we chat a little bit before, obviously it, it is a focal point of their culture. It's a focal point of the conflict. It's a focal point of of being able to cross those bridges to be able to access people is is it's there how do you navigate that coming from where you come from where you grew up what your beliefs are how do you navigate that using the the, the i mean the primary shield or tool or whatever you want to call it, of love as a as a as a spark point for people to get a conversation going how do you do that I think it's kind of weird in the American context uh, to imagine, to understand how fully integrated faith, politics, and sports are <laughs> in, in like the greater Middle East, let's say. Right. Um, we kind of have these like third rail relationship with faith and politics. And, and so we imagine that it, it must be so hard to be a Christian walking the streets of a Muslim country like Iraq or Syria. That has just not been my experience. Oh, wow. I mean, people assume that I have to keep it secret or... So I'm, I'm the son of a preacher, man. My grandfather is a pastor. I grew up with a great faith, in a faith tradition, That's a great cool. reverence for faith. Um, and that is how my Iraqi friends are. That's how my Syrian friends are. They are people of faith. And so I think that... Um, it's that's just a baseline thing that I think I should say. We imagine that somehow it must be so difficult to interact with them, those people, if you're not one of them, if you're not a Muslim. That's that's not been my experience. They have great respect for other people of faith. Uh, they have great respect for Christians in particular. They have great respect for Jesus himself. And, and so I think we have so much in common, so much common ground to start from. That's not to say there aren't differences. That's not to say that we can't have robust debates about everything from faith to politics to sports. Mm-hmm. We can, but they, they aren't so sensitive like we are. They, they don't get so easily bruised about theological debates or political debates or, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Like I think the American psyche has kind of become pretty intolerant. Overly sensitive. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, real oh, is, that, is that the difference between people who have faith and people who study religion? Maybe. I mean, I, I definitely think that's not the way the Muslim word, the, the Arabic word religion is actually something very revered. I know that in the American context, we've often separated the two. My Muslim friends see the purest of faith is the purest of religion. Um, so I don't think they would exactly draw that distinction, but I, I think it's a helpful thing that we talk about in the American context a lot that 
you know, the best of faith defeats the well, worst of religion. So many yeah. right, right. I mean, that's how you get ones that radicalize it and, yep. and, and use it. There's another interesting dynamic that I think is worth mentioning here is we are all subject and susceptible to a sort of sleight of hand that happens when we as individuals, when our, some of our media outlets talk about this region. So we always talk about Muslim terrorists or Islamic terrorists or radical Islamist terrorists, whatever you know, particularly nuanced way you want to say it. But we don't, and, and then we get these like, these extrapolations of, well, if they're so tolerant or if they're a people of peace, right, right. why aren't they doing more to whatever? But I think one of the reasons is we, we know, I think on some level right now, we know that the, the Syrian army is doing a little bit to combat ISIS. We know that the Iraqi army is doing a little bit to combat ISIS. We know that there are, but what we never do is we never talk about the Arab Muslim Iraqi army fighting ISIS. We, we switch categories. We talk about Muslim terrorists mm. and we talk about national armies, which is fine. That's how it should be. But I think it gets lost on us that who comprises that Iraqi national army? Muslims. They are Arab Muslims. Yeah. So Arab Muslims are fighting Arab Muslims and they're contending for the heart of what it means mm. to be a Muslim, what it means to be an Arab, what it means to be an Iraqi. And so I think there's a sleight of hand, not that it's a trick, it's just a, it's a mind trick or it's a, it's a messaging problem that that causes us to be blind sometimes to the fact that uh, there are people of good faith and good character and good nationalistic pride who are, who are doing actually far more than any of us are to, to build their countries and build a society that they want to live in. That's an everyday thing. I mean, armies, what, what doesn't make it across a lot of times is the level of casualties, man. Do you remember the glass factory in, in, Ramadi, in Ramadi back in uh, mm-hmm. Zo? Oh four, I think. Anyways, that we were doing the recruiting thing. They had all the all the guys were bringing them in, recruiting them, signing up to be police officers. Mm-hmm. And man, they rolled an eighteen wheeler into the yep, side of that boom. thing. Go, oh, dude, man. And guess what? Next day, there's another line. They want to fight. They're you know they want their country back. That's the thing. There's it's difficult for man for the common people to do that when you jerk the leadership. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts in in, mm-hmm. in a war, and and when you're fighting an integrated. A, you know, a terrorism is not a a, a country. Don't yeah. have a, no, it's a cancer. Right, man. It's hard. It's hard to fight. I mean, just coming from my perspective, you know, an enemy with no face kind of deal. That's when we figured out how to really get get going, man. We buddied up with them, hey, because they know where they're they're at. They know where they live. You know, whole nine yards. And they will out their brother like that <clears throat> if if brother is engaged in terrorism. Do you do you have to? Obviously, in order to navigate across all those those different lines, those blurred lines uh, is what I'm hearing. Yeah. Um, in, in order to navigate those, where do you, who, who helps you do that? I mean, who are the people that allow you to be in Fallujah one day, Najaf the yeah. other day, and another part, maybe, you know, hopefully Mosul here soon, you know, and who helps you do that? Yeah, so I mean, just like you guys do it's your best i mean we partner up with tribal leaders religious leaders government leaders all kinds of various civic Mm. stakeholders and and political stakeholders and government stakeholders and and you know frankly sometimes you got to engage less than beautiful actors in order Mm -hmm. to get the job done you just and if you are unwilling to even host that conversation, if you're unwilling to take that meeting, if you're unwilling to go into Sodder City and have a sit down with the guy who's on the cover of Time Magazine as the most wanted guy in all of Iraq, 
okay, don't take your meeting and keep everything perfectly pure, but you're only going to get so far. We, we only get out of this through engagement. We don't, we don't find our way out of this. Well, I love we can't that. kill our way to peace. We, can, we, can, Amen. we need some, I, it plays a role, but it's not going to get us to where we want to be. And so at the end of the day, someone has to dare on some level to take off the body armor and lay down the gun and, and walk toward the thing that scares us most and see if it works. And if it doesn't work, someone else has to come after and try it again. And if that doesn't work, someone has to come wow. after and try it again. I really want to, maybe this is a rabbit hole question and we don't even want to hold the answer to it, but I got to ask you the $6 million question of you're there and you have a unique perspective. You live there. You see this. What, what is the solution for this region? Um, I think you would obviously agree the removal of ISIS, you know, in their capabilities, period. Beyond that, what do you see as a solution or a couple primary points in your opinion? I think it's, and you've allowed for this, but I, I think it's potentially problematic to even refer to it as the solution or a solution <laughs> or even a region, honestly. Right. I mean, it, it's convenient and we need these placeholders to kind of simplify the way we talk. But to, it, would be, it would be a dereliction of duty for me, based on what I know and where I've served, to act like Damascus is the same as North Western Syria, where the rebels are, is the same as northeastern Syria, where a certain Kurdish group is, is anything related to ISIS in, in Mosul, is anything related to the Shia in south of Iraq. Like, these are so distinct. Yes, they're intertwined. Yes, they're interconnected. But, but they each reserve, they deserve like a, a proper treatment of, of the region and the players and the thing going on in a that unique space. unique respect for it. And so... So that's one thing. Like we need to make sure that we have people who appreciate nuance in places of power mm-hmm. and decision making. And if you don't have the capacity to speak with nuance and to think intelligently about the differentiation between a Kurd and an Arab and a and a Sunni and a Shia and a, a Syrian and a Chaldean, if you don't if you don't have that in you, then I'm really scared for you to have control over some of the decisions that need to be made in this this complex of an environment. So I think we need to get people of high intellect with a high capacity for complexity in positions of power. And I think we have some of those people. I think mm. the way our politics and our media plays out is we, we demand that our leaders give us sound bites. We demand that they feed us junk food. And we demand that they, they swear to us that they can get the job done. And the truth is, I, I honestly don't know if there is one solution that any one president or administration can bring about. Mm-hmm. I'd like to just let our presidents off the hook. You may not be able to solve all the world's problems, and I'm cool with that. Do well, be intelligent, be a person of good character, be a good diplomat, be strong, be, pr- protect America, protect others. Yes, all those things, but, but I don't expect Trump or the next president after that, or the next president after that, to, to be able to fix the world. I think it's an unreasonable thing in today's complex environment. Amen to that. That's important. Let, let, let's shift a little bit, and I want to get to the core of, of what, what your organization is titled, because in my mind, this is the essence of what you're doing. I mean, this is one of the primary focuses. My life is to begin to understand the power of love, what love does, what you can, how you can wield love as a tool, as a weapon, so help us describe what is preemptive love. Well, I mean, I was so shell-shocked in a lot of ways by my first days in Iraq. Um, <laughs> I, 
I didn't, it's such an understatement. Right, right, I mean, <laughs> it's such an understatement when you step foot over there with the power of it, right? And so I, I was operating from a place of that shockedness, that that woundedness, that confusion, that ringing sort of sensation. Not, not always literal, but you know, my worldview was was ringing, and um, I was surrounded by guys. Maybe you were some of them. Who, who took a posture that was so different than anything I'd ever been exposed to before. And, and this general posture of shoot first, ask questions later, I just, I was completely not ready for that. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was very naive. I was very Pollyanna about a lot of things at that point. And I hadn't, I hadn't experienced some of the things that, that my, my friends in the military were experiencing at that time. But in any case, what I had a hard time reconciling was those were those both, I guess, Muslim or Christian who would drape that sort of mentality, shoot first, ask questions later in religion. Um, because that wasn't the Jesus I grew up with. So if, if, if that's the military way, fair enough. I don't know how you call it the Jesus way. And so that's what, at that time, I was trying to figure out, like, how could, you, how could you basically say that Jesus endorses this shoot first, ask questions later sort of, mm. sort of way? I can, I can get the American concept. I can get the self-defense concept. I don't know how I'm going to put Jesus over that. The Jesus way that I grew up with, the thing my grandfather instilled in me, the thing that I, I read in the Bible was was about laying down your life, spreading out your arms and letting them take your body, letting them take your life, letting them rip you apart. That's not a popular message. I, I didn't want that message, but that, I mean, that was the Jesus message. And so I found myself at this faith crisis, crisis of faith in Iraq, in the middle of this war going, am I going to follow Jesus and surrender myself over to the way of love like Jesus and be a follower of Jesus? Or am I going to take a much more understandable, much more normal, sane kind of approach to life where I, I build my whole life in terms of uh, how can I protect myself and how can I make sure that I don't die in this situation? Anyway, it was from that standpoint that we started to ask questions like, what, what if there was a way to actually lose it all and still win? What if there, mm-hmm. what if somehow finding our life, finding our greatest meaning was actually wrapped up in not trying to protect it, not trying to hold on to it too tightly. And what if, like Jesus said, that the person who tries to hold on to his or her life loses it, and the person who gives their life away finds it. I didn't get it. I don't know if I get it now, but I wanted to blackmail myself into that kind of life. Whoa. And so we named the organization the Preemptive Love Coalition, not because we've achieved something or we understand how to live that life, but because I wanted to kind of paint myself <laughs> into a corner. Wow. It was like, force yourself to live up to it. Force myself to live up. To, if, if we get any notoriety, if I ever get invited to talk about something, I'm going to have to remind myself day after day after day that when the world is scary as hell, will I or will I not be a person who, who dares to love anyway? Wow. We're trying one step at a time, right? Oh my. And, I, and, and, and the goal is not to make it out alive. That's, that's the fundamental shift that I've had to come to. Consciously. That's not just a statement you're making. I'm going to be in Mosul a street or two away from ISIS in three days. 
it's it's very conscious. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a thing we talk about with our kids. I mean, my kids are just an hour or two away when I'm making that trip. They're not they're not an ocean away. They're an hour or two away, and so they know when they're sending me down the road that I might not come back. But it's it's a conscious conversation that we've had because that is. That's the religion we want to be a part of. That's the faith. That's the way of love that I want to work for. I don't, I don't need the Pollyanna faith that I grew up with. I need something robust enough to carry me into adulthood. And this is, this is what I'm exploring right well, now. You're moving past adulthood and you're moving into the place of an apostolic life, right? And, and that, that's, that's transformational. I mean, that, that gets you to that place, the essence of what, why he died for you. And that, that's truly living, right? I mean, you look at why Paul walked to his death and you look at why Peter walked to his death and it's a big sacrifice. When when you're in that vehicle and you're moving into the complete unknown, the complete offering, if you will, of your, yourself, are you, are you praying? Are you, are you thinking about love are you thinking about just are you thinking about the person on the other end what is going through your mind i'd love to take a minute to just talk about the people of iraq and what they're going through right now and and the people of syria in raqqa and what they're going through right now i mean we're looking at can i let me because this is a question i wanted to hit you with and you're about to walk into it but at least through the media we have an understanding we see we see isis bombing destroying executing, et cetera, et cetera. What we don't see too much of, at least in, from what I've, I've been watching, you don't see much of a personal story right. and what the That's people right. that are suffering, a story from them. Can you put, you know, uh, create a connection with the people who are listening by painting a picture of, this is the day living under ISIS. Yeah. For people yeah, it's perfect. I mean, you're right. When you, you watch CNN... And you're going to see the Humvees, you're going to see a couple of explosions, you're going to see some airstrikes, but it's always like machinery and, and the operators. It's not, it's not usually the people. And so, yeah, I mean, life under ISIS, I mean, what can you say? It's been a draconian, miserable experience. And yet somehow, like you were saying, Marcus, life goes on for these people. It's like a weird, I mean, you guys operated in some of this space when it was Al-Qaeda, um, People have to go out to the market. They, they go to work. They go to the school. But the overlords are these draconian guys with laws that you know, are so restrictive that you always just, you just want to keep your head down and not offend anybody and see if you can make it home at night and then do it all over again the next day. It's, do you have a pic? Do you have a, yeah, a story? Like, I mean, I'm talking like, okay, so ISIS is kind of in the final death throes in Mosul right now. And I was, I was there a couple of weeks ago, um, and we got this call that ISIS had a bunch of people trapped inside Al-Nuri Mosque, which is this 850-year-old mosque that has predated Iraq and predated the Ottoman Empire. And it's the place where uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the would-be leader of ISIS, ascended the, the pulpit and declared that this is a caliphate. This is the state, the Islamic state of this Iraq and greater Syria. And, and so it's a very symbolic place. It's symbolic historically. It's symbolic in the life of ISIS today. And we got this call from a civilian inside who had managed to sneak a cell phone in. Cell phones have been forbidden under ISIS rule for three years. 
And so a lot of our friends buried their cell phones in the backyard. They, they hammered a hole inside their cinder block and tucked it inside a cinder block so that ISIS wouldn't know they had a cell phone. But somehow he had smuggled a cell phone into the mosque where he was being held with a bunch of other people as a human shield. And they wanted to let us know that there were humans inside there. And they were afraid that they, they, ISIS was feeding them these rumors that the U.S. was going to blow up the mosque. And they wanted people to know, A, we're starving, and B, we're in here. Like, don't blow up the mosque. We're in here. We've been hearing reports of, uh, recently of families whose kids are having to eat the pages of their coloring book to stay alive, just to get something in their belly. There's some fiber in there. Maybe it's better than nothing. And so you're, you're talking about kids having to consume the very thing that was meant to entertain them and, and give wow. them a happy childhood, eating coloring book pages to stay alive. This is, this is the life from which they are trying to escape on some level. But unfortunately, not much of the aid industry is willing to go into conflict and reach the people who need it most. It's like the industry is orientated toward standing on the sidelines of conflict and saying, hey, if y'all can make it out, if you, can, if you can escape the conflict, we'll be out here. We've got a camp set up for you if you want to just kind of surrender your sovereignty and live in a camp for a while. And so we've just like... Said that that's a disaster. Let's see what we can do to go into the front lines areas. That's my question to you. What is you're driving in there? Mm. You know all that's waiting for you in some higher degree, that existential reality, your own death. What are you doing? What are you thinking? I think narcissism is a killer. To, to the degree that you're thinking about yourself and in your own life and how to protect yourself, like that's when it all starts to go south in my experience. And to the degree that you're thinking about other people and whether that's the, the people you're serving alongside right beside you or the people sort of on the other side that you're trying to get, reach, help, that, that's where the life is found. That's where the meaning is found. And so honestly, I don't find myself too much self-reflecting or praying for me or anything like that because that comes so close to a kind of narcissistic reality where everything is about me and interpreted through my lens. I think to the degree that we can stay focused on the people of Aleppo, the people of Raqqa, the people of Mosul and Fallujah and, and the buddies and women that we work alongside, like that's... I think a lot of people want it as your kids and family. I know the narcissism doesn't exist in you, but, you know, <clears throat> kids don't understand that. They don't mm. even know what that word means. You know, it's, mm. it's, it's amazing how deeply concerned my kids are for these, for their friends. These aren't other people to them. These are their people in some very real way. I mean, my kids know they're American. My kids think of themselves as Christians, but they also on some level that I don't, I can't fully relate to, think of themselves as Iraqi. Wow. I, I didn't grow up in Iraq, so I don't think that way, but Iraq is their home. So they know their passport isn't Iraqi, but but they are Iraqi in some sense, and they are offended that ISIS would try to co-opt Islam like this. And they are offended that ISIS would try to destroy Iraq and Syria like this. And so um, they are concerned for their people. They are concerned for their friends. And they want their friends to not be pushed into tents and forced to live you know, in a desert for years and years and years on end. Um, we're not reckless. We're not cowboys. Uh, we're not flippant about or glib about the cost, and we don't we don't feed our kids platitudes about any of this stuff. Um, but our kids have a remarkable capacity to to view other people's pain and keep pressing into it. 
That's great. I mean, it's the same way it works kind of in our military and in my family. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be the first one right. to tell you. Somebody's got to go and needs to be, he needs to be there as well. That's what you stepped into, man, to that breach. That's your place. Like, why would you do that? Why would you go back? Why, why? I'm like, man, somebody's got to do it. Right. Why, why can't I do it? And then they throw, you know, everyone will throw the other stuff on you and be like, man, I, yeah, hell, you can die walking outside. You know what I mean? So, I don't think it, it doesn't weigh down as heavy on you when you know you're going out right. there to when somebody's weaker than and you have the the, uh, the strength to help them. You know what it is? It's agency. I've been reflecting. I've been thinking so much on this recently. What we have, those of us in this room, and a lot of your friends listening, and anyone listening can choose this. We have the opportunity to not choose to be victims to so much of what happens to us. So one of the phrases that we, one of the phrases that we have used now recently, and this works for us in a way that it may not work for everyone, but um, we, we first started with love first, ask questions later. I get it. It's kind of, kind of hippie, kind of squishy, whatever, but it was working for us at that time. But over time, a lot of the questions of war, the questions of life in a place like Iraq, they came at us hard. I mean, I've, I've been betrayed. We've had all kinds of, death threats and fatwas issued against us. I've been arrested. I've been in prison. I've been all kinds of stuff. We've been shot, bombed at, airstriked. I mean, all of it. We've had face-to-face encounters with ISIS and, and survived. And when all that comes at you, you can't ask questions later. I mean, it's on you at that point. And so once you've lived through a round of that kind of violence and, and conflict, and what, what is going to get you through to the next side? And what we've started saying to each other is love anyway. Love anyway. Push through. When it's scary, love anyway. Go anyway. You guys say never quit. That's, we're all on the same, same page thing. about this. Mm. Same thing. It's, and what we're doing there, why we never quit, why we love anyway, go anyway, serve anyway, give anyway, is because we're exerting an agency. We're reclaiming for ourselves. I'm in control of this situation. I'm not a passenger in life's car. I'm driving the car. I'm exerting my right to go die if I want to. They're not taking my life from me. I'm laying it down in service for something greater. And I think so many of our our friends and listeners out there have like, they've just abdicated. They've given up the agency in their life and they're just going through the motions, letting life happen to them. What you guys are trying to do with Never Quit, what we're doing by saying love anyway is saying, take some control of your life. Make the decision to sacrifice your finances. Don't let life happen to you. Make the decision to sacrifice your life. Make your decision to give it to the poor. Make your decision to whatever, but exert agency over your life. And then everything has meaning. It's only when you feel like someone's taking something from you that that you start to get into this downward spiral and feel like you want to kill yourself, you know? But if, if you're giving it and exerting the agency, then you win. That's amazing. Yeah. But Jeremy, man, usually we we end by asking if you could give some pearls of wisdom to our listeners, but that last answer you gave. Yeah, we're good on that. We're good on that. <laughs> so I, I think that was one of the, that, yeah, I, anything, I, I just can't. You got that covered. It was, as, it was as eloquent as I've ever heard anybody say anybody, anything to anybody, and I just really appreciate how you put that for people. I think you summed up in just so many ways. Can you share with everybody that's listening what's next for you and how can people participate with you? How can they follow? How can they support you? Can you just share a little bit of that for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, so we're in this intense campaign right now in Mosul. We've been in Mosul for the eight months that 
that fighting has been happening against ISIS in Mosul. We're on as near the front lines as we can get, uh, embedded or or accompanied by Iraqi security forces of, of various kinds. We're always, you know, one or two streets away from ISIS if we can get there, serving the people who were just liberated yesterday or last week from ISIS control. So these are the hungry, starving people mm-hmm. that we've been talking about. Um, we are keeping kids alive now through food and through water, just like we have been for years through these more, you know, exotic surgeries. When you got your kids down to coloring book pages to That's stay alive, I mean, and, and, and our friends here in America can help us show up on the front lines with, with bread and beans and rice, you know, a good dinner for the first time in months. I mean, you're talking about emaciated kids and struggling families coming back to life. And then we help them turn that corner to where they're, they're rebuilding their neighborhoods and rebuilding jobs and stuff. So, I mean, I would just love to have partnership uh, on that, that campaign that we're in the middle of right now. I, I mentioned earlier, first in, last to leave. This is going to be an ongoing thing. You know, frankly, the media is going to move on from Iraq here in a couple of months. As soon as they say ISIS is defeated, mm-hmm. you're not going to see any more CNN reports or right. Fox reports about, about Iraq. Uh, and soon, not much about Syria, I think, for a while. And the truth is the needs are just getting started. Right. Now we can start rebuilding a destroyed city like Fallujah and Mosul and Aleppo. And so um, they're going to need our help. They're going to need our friendship. It's not that they, it's not that they can't do it, but they're going to need our friendship and, and partnership with them. And I think that's how we're going to build a more secure world for ourselves and for our kids. So yeah, I mean, we'd love to have you guys join us online, preemptive love, Coalition is the name of the organization. Preemptivelove.org is our website. Preemptive Love is the, the handle we use on all the social stuff, so Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all that. Preemptive Love, two E's, no dash, Preemptive Love. <laughs> My name's Jeremy. You can look it up that way, Jeremy Courtney. So, yeah, we'd just love to have you guys join us. Well, Jeremy, again, man, thank you so much, not only for just taking time out of your busy schedule, getting ready to hop on a flight and go be back in Mosul in three days, but also to come in and share with our listeners and, and me personally to re-embed the faith that, you know, sometimes I struggle with to get out there and, and do the real mission, which is to love other people. So thank you. Come join us. Yeah, mm-hmm. what an inspiration. Thanks. <laughs> Great job, brother. Marcus, we, we've had some of the most incredible human beings ever on this show and telling these amazing stories but this guy having him sit right there and look us in the face and talk about getting in a vehicle in two days and driving into Mosul and literally going street by street as ISIS moves out to one street he comes in to feed the sick the poor the injured. Uh, there's nobility there, right? I think oh, that's it's almost godly. A, that's got that's he's an apostle, man. Um huh. Yeah, that that I was taken aback. That blew my mind when he started talking about apostolic Journey. approach approach that that lack of or I don't know, almost disregard for your for your own welfare in order to accomplish the goal of service. That's on a whole new level that I'm still trying to wrap my 
my head around that. Dude, when he looked at me and said, do you want to come? And he was see- like, you, he, like, you remember uh, his eyes when he looked? Oh, Dude, yeah. my hey, man, called you out. Brother, my heart dropped. And I'm like, heading back to Mosul, huh? I'm like, damn, dude. I thought I was going to get out of never having to go to Iraq. And I'm like. Better knock the dust off them boots. Right? And and it made me feel. There was something that made me feel. And I don't know if this is right or this is wrong or whatever. But it made me feel like I wasn't doing enough. Like I wasn't serving God in the way I need to be serving. And remember, I focus on that all day, every day, man. Right. Right. Uh, this is literally part of my mission in life is to drop, plant that seed of love and to try and get people to think positive. But that dude is literally willing to sacrifice everything to feed a poor, injured child of war. You know, there's that time and uh, when we're, whatever it is we're doing as men that, that kind of like this is when I'm in this moment right now, this is all I got. It's my hardcore part of me, right? Right. All in. And uh, you can always tell when somebody's uh, has that, right? When they've been in there. And, <laughs> you feel it, dude. You have the kind of deployment eyes. Yeah. They're different from the first time. When the first time you're going over, you're like, oh, man, yay. <laughs> 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 you're, you're like, okay, okay, what's next? What's next? Yeah. yeah. Right? yeah. Right? That was funny. We were talking about this the other day. Remember first deployment? You take every cruise box, every pair of bag. Uh, <laughs> two is one, one is nine. We get right, that, right? right. But uh, it's. Because you need three bags for CQB and now how everything strips down in the way. And then the last point what was a, pair, a couple of pair of bags and a cruise box so you can take a TV. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I got a rifle, body armor, and what's in this noggin right here and my boys, right? <laughs> Two pairs of pants and a rifle. <laughs> yeah. But but this dude literally, he's not packing a pair of bag, bro. He's he going over. He's getting off the plane. He's going to his house. Oh, that's another thing too, man. Is I mean, we got. I mean, when we roll over into a situation like that, man, we roll heavy. Yeah, this is a whole new level when somebody's going in there, and their greatest weapon might be a pocket knife. Not yeah. even his greatest weapon is his love for those children. You're you're right. I just walked myself into that. You did. <laughs> I you I, you had to, bro. But that's the whole concept. That th- this is what blows me away. Is the dude is not going to, and he talked about it. He's been face to face with ISIS. And you know what? And remember when I hit him, like, do you, do you pray when you're rolling in? Do you, are you saying, D Lord, baby Jesus, please make sure I'm going to make it through this. And he's, he's like, no, I, I'm just thinking about the people I'm going to help. That, and that's, I mean, just think about when we roll though. Well, I don't think we never thought about getting hurt or anything. I mean, we're rolling True. out there. It's thinking about, Breachers up, blowing through that door, uh, you know, clearing, sweeping, grabbing a target, X fill. It's none of that. Just like we don't train to get beat. I mean, he's his mentality and what he does, man, is just as hardcore as ours was when we go assault. You know, when we were to go get aggressive. And uh, I agree. Yeah. One of the combat focuses that he has, if you can call it combat of love, right, is what wizard? He just kept saying it over and over, and that the. I mean, that point we were just talking about, yeah, dude. The, the idea of reconciliation being baked in. I think he actually said that. to say baked in or included and considered in like every action and decision that they make. You know, in past wars, it's kind of one of those deals where the, the aid, the Red Cross, I mean, you send those guys in, both sides kind of, hey, man, they're not, they don't have anything to do with this. They're just trying to help out the casualties of war. Right. Collateral damage. And we've been out a long time, so ISIS, man, we... I, 
can't give our two cents about fighting them guys. We don't. We're not fighting them guys. Right. Right. Uh, the wars are so dynamic and they they shift so fast. He has to be on top of that as well. He got, he's got to understand all the dynamics of that war going the in. The tribal which, differences, the right, religion. That's, that's the craziest part about what we're dealing with here is in these. And the biggest people who are affected by it are the the ground pounders. Eighteen, nineteen year olds get a couple of weeks of that partial training. They go in, and you don't have. It's not a online dealing with the the back and forth, the gunfire, man. They're doing the street walk, so you got to know the religion. You got to know cultures, the subcultures, and it divided. It's separated by streets sometimes. Well, that's what I loved about his. You know, when we hit him and said, "Hey." Well, he talked about how he people would send him a million dollars of clothing. He says. Listen, I, I don't want your clothing because I want to work with Ahmel who makes shirts and I don't want to put him out of business or I want to work with the farmers to grow their own food, to develop their own market system so that that concept of reconciliation is is present when I come to the table to try and construct some peace. This goes to show you, man, the only way you can actually get that done, because he's an outsider, and they don't look highly on outsiders uh, if they're trying to help or if they're trying to hurt. Either way, man, when you're going in, it's a problem. We're we're a foreign man in a foreign land. But it, if you take the time to actually show up and put a face on it and then stick through the hard times, you get that respect. And once they respect you, then that enables him to, to, to help as many people as he does. And even if the enemy sees him on the other, other side, they, they know when they're looking at that dude that he's actually there to help. He's not trying to do anything else. 25,000 people a day he feeds his organization. I, I, there's just something, man. I've, I've known, I've read so much about CEOs of nonprofits and, you know, how their primary focus is raising money or being at the UN or, or, you know, fundraising or lobbying or whatever it might be. This guy, this commander, this general of this unit I mean, he's in the fight, man. That just, I don't, some, it's overwhelming to a certain extent with me because you just don't see it. Yeah, I think, and he, he actually said the special forces of uh, charity work, human relief. From, from the question we were talking about, you know, how to be, how to be more effective and him mentioning the complexity um, with the different cultures, the different allegiances, the, the dynamic and these, these, these borders that, that just sort of ebb and flow and move around the complexity of that and being able to deliver something specific and, and, and immediate, you know, to, to, to real time. He's doing that. That's what his organization does. And it's easy to see how that is the effect. That's, that is the solution that, would, that is very effective or would be very effective in that type of environment. Because, you're right, because it's the fluidity, the kinetic nature. You have to be able to adapt, react, and and pick the right spot. And for him, it, I, it's rare, and you said this, you alluded to this, Marcus, it's rare to see somebody that has that hundred, you know, that thousand-yard stare in a positive way, right? We see it from right. post-traumatic stress or just the shock of war or whatever, but he's got the thousand-yard stare he knows 100%. There is no doubt in Jeremy's mind where he needs to be in his life to deliver love, to issue, to warrant, to, to unload love on those who desperately need it. And that's to that child who hasn't eaten, who has just been b blown up. That's his place in life.
listen, I, I just, man, if you're listening to this and this is your first show that you're tuning into the TNQ podcast, what a blessing for you to have heard Jeremy Courtney, to have heard his description of his mission in his life. Hopefully it's, it's setting into your heart and, and, and allowing you to truly believe that the goodness of humanity, the positivity of humanity, the beauty of what love can do in a war zone is going to inspire you. It's going to get you off the couch or get you into the fight, so to speak. And you listen, you don't have to go to Syria. You don't have to go to Iraq. We have issues here in America that you could be a frontline soldier for helping poor kids, hungry kids, helping the needy, the sick. It, we have that right here. But hopefully you heard Jeremy's words and his wisdom and his commitment, and it's inspiring you. It's inspiring you to never quit, to serve others in a way that's meaningful. Now, if this is if you're back and you're a regular listener, you've just been given another dose of the never quit mindset at one of the highest possible levels that you can imagine. I mean, I ranked this show right up there with with Tim, man. I mean, I just the passion and focus, right? Yeah, Tim Ballard, Operation Underground Rescue. Just so Hopefully now you're hearing a, a consistency of mindset that enables us as human beings to feel fulfilled, to have a higher calling, a higher purpose in life, which is to serve others who need help. And I'm, I'm just, I'm so, man, I'm just going to go right into my thanks, man. I think we're there. I don't. Hey, let, one more time. I just, we want to put out there because I know Jeremy's concerned about the, the public attention Wane, right, you know, right, right. waning once i mean isis thank god is they're on their way out but and public attention soon after the dramatic headlines is going to go somewhere else and i know he's concerned about really getting some focus and push right now for what he's working on so just we'll put this up on the website but preemptivelove.org is his organization very simple go there look at what they're doing there's more information if you, if you need to hear more they tell you about what you can do to help uh, so we urge you, all three of us here. Amen. Absolutely. Do that right now. It's that simple. Use your fingers. Get on your computer. Check it out. Get on your, your cell. Check it out. Awesome. I want to thank God and I want to thank Christ for the influence that you have on my life and for also putting people like Jeremy Courtney on this planet. I think without individuals like Jeremy, the world would be a much would be much worse off. And and so I want to thank you for that. I want to thank Jeremy, brother. <laughs> what what you're doing is so important. It's 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 just it's it's beautiful. You're doing the Lord's work. So thank you. I, I want to thank Wizard and Marcus for doing this with me, because I, I, in our own small way, we're delivering some positivity to people's life, and hopefully, and being able to bring people like Jeremy to the world and to tell his story to help him tell the story man i could not do this without you i could not i wouldn't want to do it without you and just thank you too so much absolutely brother yeah thank you for everybody that keeps coming back and letting us get behind these microphones and jeremy good luck brother oh. yeah keep your head on the swivel and your eyes are always rotating and uh, keep doing what you're doing man because it's impactful we're gonna do all we can to uh, to back you up now so Good luck, brother. I'm out. Out.